I'd like to start out this evening a couple chapters before our text that Kevin read for us this evening, and I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We will get to Romans chapter 10. I think it'll be helpful for our purposes to start in Romans chapter 8. As we turn there, we recap briefly what we have done last week in studying the gospel. What is the gospel? And we understood from Ephesians chapter 1 that it is based on what God has determined from before the foundation of the world. As, as Paul said, bless, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Why? According as. Why have we been blessed with all spiritual blessings? According as. We have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Why have we been blessed? Because we were chosen in him. And why? He says that we having been predestinated, having predestinated according to his plan, that, he, that, that he, we would be adopted as children into his family. And so we understood this great doctrine that we do not need to be hyper-Calvinists to embrace, that we were elected, that we were chosen in him, that we were predestined in him to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, we do not need to run away from this doctrine. It is not intended for us to run away from it. It is intended that for us to embrace it. As we talked about in the book of Revelation, it is suggested to us that our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And that should boggle our mind. Why should God write my name in the book of life before the foundation of the world? Why? Well, all we know is he has chosen us in him. As, as First Peter tells us, we are elect, literally chosen. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Why did God cho choose you? Because he foreknew you. Why did God foreknow you? We are at a point of mystery. Why did God foreknow us? We don't know. He did, and it is intended for us as Christians. Again, this, these doctrines of election are presented to Christians to say, you are part of God's plan. You are, have incredible value in God's eyes. And we talked about this idea that uh, the great preacher, Harry Ironside, said that as we walk in this gate of salvation, it says, whosoever will. And as we get on the other side of the gate, we turn around and it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That should be an incredible comfort to us, particularly when we face persecution and when we face challenges and when indeed we encounter our own spiritual weakness to recognize that we have indeed been chosen in him. This is a subject, frankly, friends, that if we're going to be biblical, we're going to have to embrace. If we are simply going to be committed to what the Bible says, we are just going to have to embrace it and count it as the blessing that it is. And this is why I want to start in Romans chapter 8. Will you go with me now to verse number 28? One of the most famous verses in our entire New Testament. Scripture says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. So that's us. We as Christians are presumably those that love God, right? We are called according to his purpose. Now notice how he reasons that God works all things together for good. Because notice in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, know in advance, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, children of God. 
that the only begotten Son of God would have many brothers and sisters in the family of God. That was the predestinating purpose. Now he says in verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, who's that? Who did he predestinate? Us. Them he also called. And whom he called, who is that? Us. Them he also justified. And whom he justified, who is that? Us. Them he also glorified. Now, if you were just to take this very simply, right in the way that Paul intends it, if you were to say, what is the hope of your ultimate glorification with Jesus Christ? What is the hope of your future eternal glorification? What would you say? It is because I have been justified. And if you were to ask, why have you been justified? You would say, because I was called. And if you were to say, then why was I called? You would say, well, because I was predestinated. And you would say, why was I predestinated? And you would say, because I was foreknown. Because whom he did foreknow, them he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. And if you were to say, why was I foreknown? What would your answer be? The Bible doesn't tell me. Is there any link in the chain before God's foreknowledge? There is none. This is the the wonderful preacher, Mark Minnick, uh, described the gospel in this sense as a tree. And he said, at some point, the tree goes underground. And the tree is still there. It's in roots, but you can't see it. And this doctrine of election is rooted in what God's foreknowledge is. And at that point, it is below the ground. We can't see it anymore. Other than that, we know it happened. We know it is there. And this then, Paul continues to spin out this wonderful logic when he says, what shall we then say to these things? What things? That we have been foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, and we will indeed be certainly glorified. What shall we say to these things? Paul says, my answer is, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us any, all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, of God's chosen? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, he rather that is risen again. He goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, there is nothing. He is persuaded that there is absolutely nothing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, this doctrine is meant to be a comfort to you. It is, in, it is intended to be a rock for you when everything else is swaying around you. When you are fighting your own flesh, you are fighting your own fears, you are worried, you are wondering about whether you truly are able to hang on to your Christian faith. You come to this doctrine and say, this is what God did for me from before the foundation of the world. He knew me and therefore... He predestined and called and justified and glorified. Now, when we come to the end of Romans chapter 8, the book of Romans takes a very interesting turn. Because in Romans chapter 9, Paul immediately shifts to his his fellow Jews. He is now very concerned. And he's trying to answer this question. If this gospel is so glorious, if Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen Messiah of God to bring about the salvation of his people, why have so few Jews accepted it? Now that would be a relevant question, wouldn't it be? If all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus, that was the entire intent, then how come so many Jews missed it? And we might ask the same question today. How come the Jewish people writ large have rejected their Messiah? 
It doesn't seem to make sense. And Paul goes on in chapter 9, we won't go through each of the passages or each of the verses here, but he goes on to attribute God's sovereign work. He says to, to uh, as he it demonstrates from the Old Testament, he says, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He says in verse 18, therefore hath he, God, has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet found fault? For who hath resisted his will? He's bringing up an objection. Well, how come God is going to find fault with anyone? And look at his response. Oh man, who are you that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? What he's saying is, God has sovereign authority over his creatures. If God wants to save one, that is his sovereign choice. If he wants to send one to damnation, that's his sovereign choice. He says, who are you to respond to God and say, God, you're unjust. He said, that is God's sovereignty. That is the extent of his sovereignty. And at this point, we may become, be, have a very fatalistic impulse. I mean, so well, if, if, if truly all of this was determined if, if for, beforehand, if it's true that God foreknew and predestined and called and justified certain, then I guess it's just all fatally been determined and there's nothing else for us to do. But this would be a very inaccurate interpretation of what Paul is trying to communicate and a very inaccurate interpretation of what God wants your thinking to be on these issues, which is exactly where we get to Romans chapter 10. You see, as I said last week, there are, and, and again this morning, there are two railroad tracks that God wants us to understand when it comes to the gospel. It is last week we studied the divine purpose of the gospel. We cannot turn away from the doctrine of election. It's there. It's taught all over the place. And yet at the same time, the other railroad track that the train of the gospel must move on is the, is the track of human responsibility. And when we see Romans chapter 10 and many other places in the Bible, we are able to put the train of the gospel on those two tracks and ultimately to preach both of them as ultimately what God would have us to do in the gospel. The title of the message tonight is simply The Gospel, Human Responsibility. Last week, the gospel, divine purpose. This week, the gospel, human responsibility. Notice verse 1 of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may, might be saved. This was the burning desire of Paul's heart. For I bear them record. His testimony of them is that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And how much of false religion does this relate to today? You look at these very observant Muslims, our Somali neighbors that are around us. Do they have a zeal for a, a, a creator, yes, but it's not according to knowledge. You look according even to cults, you look at other places, they have a zeal after a God that they do not know. As Paul said to the Athenians, I, I sense you're very superstitious, you're very religious, you're very devout, but you don't know who you're worshiping. Verse three, Paul says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of Christ for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He is the end. 
in him we find the only righteousness that the law could possibly grant. It is he who fulfilled the perfect righteousness of the law. And now he offers his imputed righteousness to us to be our righteousness, though we deserve it none. And now notice what he says in verse 5. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. And he's quoting Leviticus 18.5 here. You could mark that in your Bibles if you wanted the cross-reference. Leviticus 18.5. And Scripture says here, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Now let me ask you this question. Is this an accurate statement of theology to say that the man which does these things, the law, the legal commandments, shall live in them. Is that an accurate statement or a false statement? What do you think? It's an accurate statement. It's an accurate statement. Do you know that if you could keep God's moral law with complete blamelessness, you would live in it? Here's the problem, you can't. So this was an accurate statement. God's statement throughout the Old Testament law was, if you do my commandments, you will live in them. And Jesus himself came to fulfill perfectly the righteousness of God in the law. The problem is that it is impossible for us, and that is why the law ultimately condemns us and convicts us. It does not justify us. And that's why he says here in verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, into the depths of the sea, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh or near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Here's the first point that we want to make tonight of human responsibility. It's that the gospel is accessible. This is God's provision. The gospel is accessible. Again, notice this contrast that Paul is making. What is the righteousness of the law? Is it accessible? Let me ask you this. Is there righteousness in the law? Yes, Jesus fulfilled the law. Is righteousness in the law accessible? No. Because you can't keep get there. You and I, born in our sin, in our fallen nature, can never satisfy the righteousness of the law. It is completely inaccessible to us. That's why we need the gospel. So here on one hand, Paul is contrasting, what does the law say? The law says, do it and you'll live in it. And we say, well, that's inaccessible, that's impossible. That's like me telling my son Xander, hop up on the counter and grab some cereal, open the refrigerator, grab the milk out, and pour yourself some breakfast if you want it, hungry, crying child. That would be completely unreasonable. It is inaccessible to him. But notice what, the, again, the argument, the contrast that he makes when he compares it to the gospel. The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. He said, the word is near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. Now, friend, is something in your mouth and in your heart accessible to you? Of course it is. He says that's as close as it is. Friends, do you know how, in a sense, that is how close people are to being saved? The word of faith is near them. It's in their mouth and it's in their heart, as we'll see in just one moment. That is as close to you as your salvation is. Again, if you think about it, if you think about God in the law, 
presenting this extremely high, inaccessible standard for us to reach. And it's used to convict us. It's used to show us that we fall so short of the righteousness of God. And in the gospel, God takes it down from the highest shelf and puts it right in front of us and says, there it is. Now can you do that? And we say, it's near me. It's near me. It's accessible. Now it's very interesting about this in here, again, in these verses, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Did you recognize that? Paul is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is saying in the book of Deuteronomy, this word of the law is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart, so do it. And Paul is taking what Moses says about the law and he's applying it to the word of faith to the Christian. You say, that's a little bit strange, but it's not when you're thinking of how Paul viewed the law. Remember what he said, Christ is the end of the law. The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believed. If you're Paul and you look back at the Old Testament law and you see all of it pointing forward to Christ, you see Moses talking about the, the law that is being near them in the commandment in their mouth and in their heart, and you see Christ being the end of the law and seeing Moses pointing forward to Jesus Christ, and you say, oh yeah, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about the fulfilling of that law in Jesus Christ. And what this suggests for us, again, this picture of God taking what was on this high shelf that was inaccessible to us and bringing it to the lowest shelf so that it would be near us in our mouth and in our heart, we see God's heart. And friend, any view of the gospel, any view, any hyper-Calvinist view of the gospel that, that turns away from God's heart for all of his creation is not teaching the gospel. Because our Bibles say in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 that God has us to pray for all men because he will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. All men. He will. He desires. It is his heart that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 tells us that God has, is not slack in his promise concerning when he's coming again to judge all men and to bring about his redemption. But, it's, but he says, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Any system of theology that does not embrace that aspect of it, every bit as much as it embraces God's election, God's predestination, is not ultimately in, in, uh, accurately reflecting the heart of God. And this is why we need to recognize that in this, the, the sense that the gospel is accessible, there is something about God's posture toward his children, his posture toward his people. And Romans 10 brings this out wonderfully. The question again of Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is, why didn't Israel accept this wonderful gospel? And Paul continues to work this out. I want us to notice, if you just look ahead at, at Romans chapter 10, he says in verse number 18, he says, but I say, have they, has Israel not heard? He said, yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Again, quoting from the Psalms to show the vast spread of the gospel even to the Jews among that day. He said, but I say, did not Israel know? The idea here is, didn't they understand? Didn't they get it? He said, first Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation I will anger you. You say, what point is he making? 
he's simply saying this. The Gentiles accepting the gospel of Christ and getting the benefits of the Messiah should have provoked the Israelites to say, we're missing it. We're missing the boat and jump on. It did not. Notice verse 20. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Now, who's he talking about, Jews or Gentiles? Who's he talking about? Gentiles. Who were those who didn't seek after him? Gentiles. Who did God make himself manifest to? Gentiles. Do you know who wasn't seeking after him? You and me. Who did God make himself manifest to? Us. Paul is again attributing to God this work that was intended to bring Israel to salvation. And now notice to verse 21. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now again, if we have this fatalistic impression of the hyper-Calvinist that suggests there's just a God up there who has just, has just already meted things out from eternity past. You get to go to heaven. You get to go to hell. All right, I wash my hands of it. Let's go. We're ready to go. They have, no, they have no ability to say why God is stretching forth his hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. They have no basis for suggesting, in a sense, how Jesus stood in Jerusalem and looked at the people who were rejecting him and said, I have wanted to bring you under my feathers like a hen gathering her chicks, and you would not. The fact that God is not willing that any should perish shows his posture toward mankind, which says, come, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, I am encouraging you. See, we see this even in the gospel itself. 1 John 2, in, chapter, in verse number 2, Scripture tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is, a, again, this kind of hyper-Calvinist view that sees this limited atonement. Jesus really only died for the ones that were elect. And it, frankly, is just fundamentally against Scripture, which says he died for the sins of the whole world. This is, again, part of God's drawing of men to himself. Here's what the gospel, when it was preached in the book of Acts, listen to what Peter said in Acts 3 to these Jews that were in Jerusalem. He said, unto you, you Jews, first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. What was God's heart? To turn away every one of their iniquities. Did, did they accept it? No. And their iniquities will not be turned away. But that is God's heart. I think of Acts chapter 17 now when God, when, when Paul is going to the Gentiles, to the Greeks in Athens. He's not speaking to Jews. He's speaking primarily to Greeks. And he's preaching the gospel to these sophisticated philosophers in Athens. And he says these words. And the times of this ignorance, this idolatry, God winked at. Not like a, ha ha, aren't you cute? But a sense in which I am not holding it to account right now. But then he says, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. How many? All men everywhere. That is the gospel. That is what the gospel is going toward. All men everywhere. And I emphasize this because we must embrace the idea that the gospel is accessible. It is near us. It is in our mouth. It is in our heart. 
It is there is a God in heaven who is seeking the lost, who has a heart that all will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So first of all, the gospel is accessible. But notice secondly here, the gospel must be accepted. That's the message of of Romans chapter 10. The gospel is accessible. It is near us, but it must be accepted. Notice what he says here again in Romans chapter 10. The word is nigh thee, verse 8. It is near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, what is near us? The word of faith which we preach. That's what's near us. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, remember, what is he just said is near us? It's near us in our mouth. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Again, he said that it's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. You have to confess it with your mouth and you have to believe it in your heart. He goes on to say, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich. Circle that word, emphasize it, underline, is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, I want to give you quickly here from Romans 10 a brief A, B, C of salvation. A, B, C. Here's the A, allegiance. Now, why do I use that word allegiance? I want us to look here at verse number nine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. It would be a completely accurate and appropriate way to translate that to say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You could translate it the exact same way. You you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, why do I use that word allegiance? The word confession here has the idea of, of just saying the same thing as it is recognition. It is speaking with your mouth a testimony, a declaration about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now you need to understand something about this Greek word here that's used for Lord. It is the Greek word kurios. We would transliterate that K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios. Now if you were raised in a liturgical circle, Do you ever remember hearing the Kyrie, the Kyrie eleison? Do you know what that means in Greek? Lord, have mercy. Kyrie is Lord. That's just a different case in the Greek. It's just a different, effectively, just a different way of saying kurios, Lord. Now, why is this important? I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish person. A Jewish person in that day, if he was Greek-speaking, would, may have had accessible to him the Septuagint. Have you ever heard of the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we see actually in our New Testament, Paul and others quoting from that Greek New Testament. Sometimes have you ever read a verse that's quoted in the New Testament and you went back in the Old Testament, it was a little different than the translation from the Hebrew? It's why, because he was quoting oftentimes from the Septuagint. And in going from Hebrew to Greek to English, it ended up a little bit differently than going from Hebrew directly to English. So here's the Septuagint. Guess which word in the Septuagint was translated into kurios? Which word in the Hebrew? Yahweh. Do you know what word Yahweh was? Jehovah. Do you know what word also was translated kurios in the Greek? 
in, 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 in the Greek, Adonai. Adonai, the name of God in the Hebrew. What did it mean for a, a, a Jew when he was speaking Greek to say kurios? Who was he referring to? Jehovah God. What would it mean for a Jew in Greek to say that Jesus is kurios? What was he saying? He's God. He's, that's a significant name. It is identification of Jesus Christ as God, as master, as Lord, and I as slave. But not only that, it was a serious word to those even who were not Jews. Now, in some senses, this word kuria simply could mean sir. It could be a place of respect. It could also mean master, boss, Lord, like we think of it today. But there's something really relevant about the fact that in the Roman times, the emperors would refer to themselves as kurios. In fact, the Christians were, were uh, martyred because they would not call Caesar kurios. Polycarp, remember my father talking about Polycarp and his martyrdom? Polycarp was martyred, it said, because he refused to call Caesar Lord. He said, I will not call him kurios. I have one Lord. He is Jesus. What it meant when a Christian said that Jesus is kurios, it meant I am aligning myself with him. I'm not aligning myself with, with Caesar. I am recognizing that Jesus is my sole master, that he is my Lord. And scripture is full of this identification with Jesus as Lord. In Acts chapter 2, scripture, Peter's preaching to the people at Pentecost. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both kurios, Lord and Christ. You remember in Philippians 2.11 when Paul looks forward to that wonderful day when every single knee will bow and every single tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is kurios, Lord. What it meant to be a Christian in the early days of the church was to confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you'll recognize, if you ever notice it here even when we baptize, those who come, we ask every one of them to confess publicly before all of you that Jesus is Lord. They are making that confession that is dated back to the earliest days of the church, Jesus is Lord. What they're saying is really a declaration of allegiance. So I start there, allegiance, but that allegiance is rooted in something. Notice what comes next. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now I want us to notice what he's saying that belief is. He doesn't mention the cross. He doesn't mention the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He doesn't mention all the theological apparatus of what salvation is. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus in allegiance, and that is rooted in a belief in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, what is he saying when he says you believe that God has raised him from the dead? What are you saying? You're saying Jesus is alive. You're saying he's not dead. You're saying God put his stamp of approval on him and everything he did in that he rose him from the dead never to die again. 
Friends, I said it this morning, and I will continue to repeat it over and over and over again. Do not miss in your gospel presentations that Jesus is alive. Because we can see even in the earliest church at the, in the book of Acts, these gospel presentations did not always bring out a detailed exposition of penal substitutionary atonement. Did they deal with sin? Yes. Did they say that Jesus came to pay for your sin? That Jesus came to forgive you of your sin? Yes. Did they have a detailed theological exposition? No. But they did say this. He's alive and you better, and you better believe on him and put your allegiance in him. You better accept him, in other words, as a living being, as someone who will be your judge one day, and you will see. Friends, there are plenty of people all over the country or, or who could explain to a T to you the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement of what Jesus did to pay the penalty of sins on the cross, and they are not saved. And you would find people today that you could ask, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And they would say yes, and they are not saved. Why? Because what they have missed is at what the heart of the gospel is, is that there is an allegiance to Jesus Christ rooted in the central reality that he has been raised from the dead and that he is alive today. The gospel, accepting the gospel, is about accepting a living person, not a set of facts, not a set of theologies, not a set of ideas, not a set of simple uh, 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 box-checking in doctrine. It is about accepting a person. And we have to understand that. Jesus himself, in John chapter 6, says this to those who were coming to them. He said, I am the bread of life. Do you hear that? I, me, my person, my living being, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. What is he saying? Salvation is about coming to me as a living being, a living person, and finding your allegiance in me confessing me, embracing me, accepting me. Now, if you hear yourself in your gospel presentations focusing all on theology of how Jesus confesses sins and not on the simple and simple profound declaration that Jesus is alive and your eternal destiny is whether you accept him, you're, you're not given the whole gospel. Now again, don't get me wrong. Is it wrong? Is it, is it a bad thing to explain how Jesus forgave your sins on the cross? No, that's a wonderful truth. It's theology, it's good theology. It's to be proclaimed and understood. I'm saying don't miss it. Don't miss the heart of it. That there's allegiance, confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. There is belief that God has raised him from the dead. He is alive. He is a living being. And then see the call. Notice what he says here, the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. And quoting from the book of Joel, he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, what does this add to confession and belief? It's connected as a, as a, as a direct outflow from belief. How do I see that? Because notice verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
There's a sense in which confession of allegiance toward Christ, which is rooted in a belief on Christ, on the living being of Christ, will necessitate, will reflect itself in calling on the name of the Lord, in calling on him for the forgiveness of our sins, in calling on him for his promise of eternal life, of reaching out toward him and ultimately receiving his acceptance. That's the ABCs to me, most simply, of the gospel. An allegiance in Christ that is rooted in a belief in him and on him. A trust in him for everything that he is to us in eternal life as a living being and also including a call on him. Calling out to him for our eternal life. Now I want to pause here for just a minute. I don't want to presume that every single one here has ever accepted the ABC of the gospel. And I just want to pause just to say this. Have you expressed your allegiance in Jesus Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart on a living person, not a set of theologies or doctrines, on a living person? Have you given yourself to him the belief that is a trust, that is placing all your weight on him for your eternal destiny as someone who is alive and will be your judge one day? And have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you done that? I want to encourage you tonight to examine whether that ABC has been your basis, has been your acceptance of the work of the gospel in you. God has brought it down to the very lowest shelf. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It can be accepted by you tonight if you have not. So notice, first of all, the gospel is accessible. Secondly, the gospel must be accepted. And then thirdly here, the gospel is to be announced And I love this. Look at how Paul continues going on in verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? There's that connection between belief and call. And then notice, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer of that good news? And how shall they preach except they be sent And he goes back to the Old Testament once again to say, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? And notice this conclusion here in verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How is someone saved? How is someone brought to the point where they confess with their mouth, they believe in their heart, and they call on the name of the Lord? It's by faith. That faith comes by what they've heard, and that hearing comes by the word of God taking root in their souls and bringing them to that faith. As scripture says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. The requirement is simply they must hear the word. This is part of our responsibility, friends. If the word of faith is near every single person, but it's near to them only if they hear it, what is your job? What is my job? To preach, to speak, to proclaim. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And notice this question, how shall they preach except they be sent? Friends, there is a sense in which 
certain people are specifically sent, there's no doubt, to be missionaries, to be vocational pastors, to be others who have a special calling on their life to be sent. But I'm wondering if you have pleaded with God to say, send me. Send me to be a preacher in my neighborhood. Send me to be a preacher in my school. Send me to be a preacher on my bus route in my Sunday school class. May each one of us hear the calling that God has for every single one of us to fulfill the great commission to be sent. God is looking to send us to proclaim the gospel in a way that is near every single person. We've talked about two railroad tracks. One railroad track of God's divine purpose in the salvation of souls, his sovereign power, his sovereign ability to decide the destiny of his creatures. We've seen God's um, a, a wonderful posture in the gospel to bring the word of the gospel down to the lowest shelf to be accessible to all of us. It's nigh us. It's in our mouths. It's in our hearts. My question for us tonight is how should we think about that when it comes to the gospel? How should, how should we think about these two railroad tracks when we come to this point? I just want us to bring a couple verses to mind tonight that I hope will be helpful to you as you consider your own responsibility to go. The first one is this. There is not one person who will be able to say, I did not have responsibility to accept the gospel. There is not one person who will be able to say, God, it's your fault that I am not saved because you did not elect me. There's not one person. There is not one person who will be able to say, Holy Spirit, you did not work in my life. You did not do your part that was necessary. It's your fault. And I glean this from what Scripture says in Acts 7. In Acts 7, Stephen is preaching to the people, the Jewish people. And listen to what he says to them. He says at the end of this sermon, right before he's stoned to death, right? He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do all always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Was he saying to them, no, the Holy Ghost isn't working on you guys? No. He's saying he was and you were resisting him. And do you know that's true of every person? Because Jesus says in John chapter 14 that when he would send the spirit of truth, the comforter, he would convince who of sin and righteousness of judgment? Who? Who? The world. Who is the spirit convincing of sin and of righteousness and of judgment right now? The world. And at one day, that final judgment, it will be as if God, the judgment, the indictment on, on all those who do not believe is that you resisted the Holy Ghost. You resisted the Holy Spirit of God. There's not going to be one person, as I said, who's going to be able to shirk his human responsibility by pointing at God and saying, your divine election, your divine purpose was not sufficient for me. The blood of Christ was not, was not ultimately powerful enough for me. I want, us to bring us, I want to bring us to one other point, that, a place that may be helpful to us. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I think we see both of these railroad tracks presented together in a very interesting way. Here Paul is at Antioch. 
He is preaching the gospel to, to those at Antioch. He's being resisted by the Jews. He's being welcomed by the Gentiles to preach. And notice what he says in verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Do you see human responsibility all over that? You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And that is ultimately going to be the judgment on all men. You judged yourself unworthy of eternal life by putting the gospel away from you. There's human responsibility. But then keep on going. Notice verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. How many believed? Those who were ordained to eternal life. There's divine purpose, there's election. There's predestination, there's calling, there's justification. You say, these are two railroad tracks. Yeah, they are. God says to the Jews, you judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, so we're turning to the Gentiles. The words preached to the Gentiles, what happens? As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. You say, how does that work? How does that work in God's foreknowledge? I don't know, but it does. And so all I know, friends, what to do is to preach both tracks. To say God elects, he chooses he chose you before the foundation of the world. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And I preach the other track that says, the word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever will may come. The blood of Jesus Christ is shed for all sins. God's purpose was to turn every single one of you away from your sins. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you reject it, it is on you and you entirely do not find fault in God. That's the only way I know how to do it. And is that going to satisfy a kind of committed hyper-Calvinist who wants every element of their systematic theology to be logical to them? No. Will it satisfy the hyper-Arminian who wants every single aspect of the free will of man to be logical and wrapped up in a neat little bow for him? No. But that's okay. Will it satisfy? Should it satisfy? the one who's just looking to go as far as the Bible goes and go no more beyond that, I hope it satisfies me to be able simply to say, what do I know? I know that God is the one ultimately who is behind all of our salvation and to him is all the glory. And I know that for all those who do not believe, it will ultimately have been their responsibility that was rejected from him. And ultimately in all of this, while I may not understand where those, that tree goes under the ground and everything that's under the ground, I'm content with that. Because I want to read for you what Romans, what Paul, how Paul closes in the book of Romans here in Romans uh, chapter 11. As he's concluding this whole section on Israel, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
For who hath known the mind of the Lord? You say, how do I understand the foreknowledge of God? You don't. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Not us. Or who hath been his counselor? Not us. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. What should your posture and mind be toward the gospel, even those parts we don't fully understand? It is to say, God, all glory be to you. All glory be to you in your divine purpose that is outworked in the salvation of souls and in the human responsibility that all of us are called to bear. Now let me just close by saying this. What does this mean for how you preach the gospel? It simply means this. If whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, preach to whosoever. Preach to every single person. Preach to everyone and tell them that whosoever will may come. I loved what D.L. Moody said about this. He said in his notes in his Bible, he said, the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Do you love that? The, 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 the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. So just go preach to whosoever that they indeed can come and trust God to bring about what he has purposed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in the gospel. Father, we are not you. We do not have your mind in all of its riches and depth. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Not us, Father. Father, may we not be those who go beyond your word. May we be content with preaching what your Bible says. And be content with being silent on what it doesn't. Thank you that we see in your word this wonderful divine purpose that you have, that you have chosen, that you have predestined, that you have called, that you have justified, that you will glorify all in your foreknowledge. And also the responsibility is on us, is on all to accept the gospel that you have given. Father, humble our hearts, quiet our hearts, and above all, send us out to proclaim your gospel that whosoever will may come. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I just encourage you tonight, in whatever way the Spirit is working on you, may we leave here committed to be sent, to simply proclaim the gospel, allegiance to Christ rooted in belief on Christ, leading us to call on Christ. Father, thank you that in your economy, your divine purposes are not inconsistent with our human responsibility. Father, may we take our responsibility seriously to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.